0: I was listening back to the beginning of episode one of the Coot Street really? podcast a little while ago. Now, I don't know if you recall, but we started recording on the, must have been the 7th of May, 2010. So we're coming up and having done this for two years. Mm-hmm. And what I realized is that there's something that's not in the first podcast that's in most of the others. Which is? And good morning, Gary. And good evening, Jonathan. How are you on this 96th occasion of the Good Street Podcast?
1: Okay, I did something today that no self-respecting science fiction, rational, minimally mathematically literate person would do. I bought a lottery ticket. (laughs) Good man. And I will tell you why. Well, first of all, what's going on in the United States right now is the largest lottery prize in the history of the world or something like this—it's It's $600 million.
0: Holy... I I take it that you'll pay for me to fly to Chicago should you win the $600 million?
1: Oh, I I intend to buy Worldcon for the next five (laughs) years if I win this money. I'm going to give the awards to who I want to. Uh, But of course I'm not going to win. And of course... I understand. One of my colleagues, Roosevelt, a Roosevelt mathematics professor, was on the local news last night mm-hmm. explaining. Well, okay, the odds of winning this lottery are, are, are roughly the same of, uh, as as being struck by lightning while being bitten by a shark, which is being hit by a meteoroid. Um, but it could happen. It could happen. But the thing is, if I didn't buy it, I have grandkids who would be needling me for the next three weeks that I failed to buy the <laughs> winning ticket. And the whales. Yes. You can you can ask you know, ask Sophie this. Yeah. Uh, as long as as long as I buy one ticket and lose, yes. then I've obviously opened Schrodinger's box and I've lost. Yes. If I buy a ticket and win, so much the better. If yes. I don't buy a ticket, the box is forever closed. I won't know that I've lost, and that drives my grandkids crazy.
0: <laughs> yes. And hey, look, the opportunity to buy two thousand supporting memberships to WorldCon and determine the Hugo's for a year. Not that you'd be stacking the vote, not that you'd be stacking the vote at all. It'd obviously be I'd a rich, be very off the box. I mean, come on. Ah, ah. ah, and how timely! I mean, oh you can't win that quickly. But it occurs to me what happens next weekend, Gary. When, in fact, let me correct. Let me step back. Mm-hmm. The day the that this episode, episode 96, goes to air, as it were, or whatever you'd say, it does when it when it, when it streams out to the world. Will be the weekend they announce the Hugo Awards nominations. Uh-huh. That will be exciting then. So in fact Which means
1: we can't English talk English. about it till the week after. <laughs> we can't talk about it till the week after, so people should know that yeah, the Hugo Awards nominations will be next week's podcast. Oh.
0: So let's that means we have to sort of find something else to talk about. Though it will be interesting. I'm interested to see what comes up. Uh, I think we always are, and there are all kinds of little new bibs and bobs in the Hugos every now and again. And we're not going to go on, on and on about the Hugos. But we will, I think, turn our attention to another award. Um, and actually, I'm going to take a step back even from there. I want to talk briefly about the subject of talking about awards. Uh-huh. Uh, I think it makes some of our friends in the field uncomfortable if you talk about awards too much, I think they think that, that you are campaigning for awards, that you're giving them too much prominence, that that you are, I don't know, somehow you're paying attention to the wrong thing in the field. You know, you're not focusing on books, you're not fo- focusing on writers, you're not focusing on how the field changes and everything else. And my counterargument to that is, I think what you're actually doing is, is in fact, you're grabbing. A framework on which you can have that conversation, you know, because when you talk ab- about a set of awards, then you're talking about a group of work that's eligible for them. You talk, you're talking about the period of time that those awards cover. You're talking about you know, books you might have missed during that time, mm. and I think that's really valuable. Uh, I mean, setting aside from the fact, as we've said many times before, I certainly just love awards because they're fun to talk about. They're but, fun to talk about. Yeah.
1: I agree. Uh, and I think that uh, since every award is a little bit different from every other award, I mean, you mm-hmm. have uh, the juried awards like the Clark Awards, you have mm-hmm. the popular vote awards like Hugo, mm-hmm. you have the half and half like world fantasy. Um, and, and and what you're doing is is getting a, a fairly good take, maybe not necessarily on the literature itself, but on the way people read science fiction,
0: mm-hmm,
1: how different groups read it and how they, how they evaluate it. Um, I mean, what the Hugo tells us... Uh, it doesn't tell us what the best novel is of the year, but it tells us the novels that people reading in that year liked yes
0: I mean this is the uh, thing i mean it's it's why they're they're you know sort of and I realize this is, this is a slightly schizophrenic i think way of describing it they're really unimportant and they're completely critical at the same time I, th- um,
1: I think it, it's one of those odd things about um literary history, it's, you can say the same thing about almost any awards, the Academy Awards, the Pulitzers, the Nobel Prizes. In that year, it's worth generating that discussion, because it keeps the discussion going. Five, ten, fifteen years afterwards, uh, they seem increasingly less relevant.
0: Yes. Or, words, well, I mean, what, what, what five, ten years after? Gary K. Wolf, on this mm-hmm. day, the 31st of March in Perth, or the 30th of March in Chicago, tell me, Gary, what novel won the Hugo last year? Um. Okay, good point. Good question. I don't remember. And, and we will allow, I hope, that, you know, the sort of, uh, the, the Hugo is the big one, and mm-hmm. the novel is the big, big one. So if you don't remember, and I'm, I'm assuming you're paying attention, right? Uh, that if you don't remember who won less than 12 months ago in, in sunny, oh god, in that armpit of the universe is Reno, then, right. you know, what sort of <laughs> statement are you making? Particularly since when I tell you what it is, because I just looked it up, I'm using my iPad to the side okay, so people are. So, uh, so you had to look it up too, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't remember. Oh. It was Black Hat All Clear by Connie Willis. I could have figured that out. And I'm gonna be, be, be mean. I'm gonna say a book probably doomed to be forgotten. Um it's I don't think it'll be forgotten. I don't think it'll be widely read
1: simply because it's a massive historical novel with a science fiction. Uh, a twist to it. Yeah. My point is that if if you were going to write the history of science fiction, is that a significant move forward in the genre? No. Uh, one of the things that's uh, clearly going to be coming up for, for discussion is is Embassy Town. Is it a major move forward? No. In other words, if you write the history of science fiction, yeah. you cannot you cannot write the history of 20th century science fiction by looking at Hugo Awards or World Fantasy Awards or anything else.
0: No. No, you can't. Well, not in any meaningful way. And when you do, you end up making false, um, uh, false, to false conclusions about the field because those things present a somewhat distorted view. You know. Well, one of the things that I've seen uh, before,
1: and I've seen this sometimes in articles or even books by usually mainstream critics who decide they're going to look at science fiction. And they figure, well, a good way to get a sense of science fiction of the last 20 years is to look at the Hugo winners. Bad idea.
0: <laughs> well, I just, get. Let me challenge that though. Listen hmm. to this. I have in front of me the the the, the decade of the uh, you know the last decades Hugo award-winning novels, right? So 2001 to 2010 is 10 years worth, right? uh uh-huh. Now, okay. Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, American okay. Gods, Hominids, Paladin of Souls, Jonathan Strange and Mr Norrell, Spin by uh, Bob Chuck Wilson, Rainbow's End, The Yiddish Policeman's Union, The Graveyard Book, and then The City and the City and The Wind-Up Girl. Here's what th- those ten books tell you about the science fiction field in the, de- the first decade of the 21st century. We were focused on fantasy, with a l- looking at YA. We struggled right. with uh, high-end concept science fiction. There's very little about of it available. When it did come to the fore, it was written by uh, long-serving writers. We avoided pulp fiction. That's what it tells you, and that's not completely wrong. I think that's true to some extent. I mean, if if
1: you're talking about what the readership is doing from year to year, Mm -hmm. what I'm saying is if you're trying to figure out how did science fiction evolve doing it, mean, part of the confusion is obviously that the Hugos have now become a fantasy award as much as a science fiction award. Yeah. Uh, And I'm not sure that when you're talking about uh, novels like, there's certainly a a, a blended area. There's that thing we've talked about many times about genres being mixed up and you've got Swanwick and that sort of thing. But when you're talking about Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell or the Graveyard Book, you're not talking about anything that's close to science fiction.
0: No, 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 no. So or or Harry Potter. Or, or, or. Yeah. You're talking about flat-out fantasy. Yeah. And it's not like the nebulas are much different. I mean, this is its batch of winners, right? They start, It starts the decade with Darwin's Radio by Greg Bear, which is a good, mm-hmm. solid science fiction novel. And yeah. then, then The Quantum Rose by Catherine Asaro, American Gods by Neil Gaiman, The Speed of Dark by Liz ha- uh, Elizabeth Moon, Paladin of Souls by Bujold, Camouflage by Haldeman, Seeker by Jack McDevitt, Yiddish Policeman's Union, Powers by Le Guin, Wind Up Girl by Batsukalupi, and then Blackout All Clear, which is this coming, this decade now. But And I, I, I don't know, the, the to me, that's kind of the same kind of picture as the Hugos, but we're hanging out with our, our, our old friends and acknowledging them along the way because we're a smaller group. I think
1: that's true. And I think that to some extent the nebulas have uh, at least the excuse of being an award of the science fiction and fantasy writers of America, yes. which which was, was, a, was a controversial move when it happened. But I mean, you can also see even when you look at books that seem to be game changing books at the time mm-hmm. uh, from a perspective of a couple of years later, um, I don't know if people in 1985 saw saw how important Neuromancer was going to be. Yeah, I think we all thought that The Wind-Up Girl was going to be
0: that kind of a book, and I don't see it happening. No, no. In fact, I, I, even as I read it, do you, know, do you know the book that The Wind-Up Girl reminds me of? Mm. Accelerando by Charlie Strauss. Another book that seemed to be... Well, you know what? I think, I think what
1: these books did... Um, and maybe we're looking at literary history backwards here. Mm. Accelerando seemed to me not to be the beginning of something new, but a culmination of something that had been working out in, in all kinds of fiction, Charlie Strauss, and sure. Vinci, a bunch of stuff. And I think The Wind-Up Girl may have been a culmination of a certain kind of thing, yeah. uh, but it, it didn't change things. I think what what that teaches me is that it's more interesting to look at writers than trends. I mean, the, the kind of, let's say, third world science fiction <laughs> that's a feature of The Wind-Up Girl it's something that Ian McDonald has been doing very well for many, many years. Yes. Um, and, and 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 maybe with the wind-up girl, with the kind of uh, post-industrial, post-electronic, post-Western future that he's talking about, uh, it's 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 kind of a definitive statement of that. But it's not it's not revolutionizing the field. There aren't a lot of people going out and saying, "Oh yeah, we should have thought of that." That's all right. Right, wind-up girls now. Okay.
0: Let me ask you this question, and this is actually it's a marginally interesting question, but still. First of all, Accelerando came out in about 2005, uh, and it uh, summarized, well, a whole batch of uh, stories were sucked into it. Do you think it's still read now much? Never mind in 10 years' time. And in 10 years' time, when we get to the end of this decade, I mean, we're in 2012, so Mm. let's say that by some horrific miracle you and I are still recording this podcast in say May of 2021 huh <laughs> um no
1: don't say that <laughs> we well, we 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 should just as a footnote here saying we're we're weeks away from from our 100th podcast so who says there won't be a 1000th
0: <laughs> maybe maybe <laughs> but anyway my point is in 2021 Mm. Will The Wind-Up Girl be being read? My guess is it will.
1: Uh, not because... There, there, there are two ways of looking at a novel like The Wind-Up Girl. One is, is it revolutionary? And it seemed like it at the time. It's probably not in retrospect. Second, is it a really well-written novel? Yes, it is. And I think on, the, on, on, on that level, its virtues will keep it being read. Okay. Uh, one of the other writers that you mentioned who was a nominee, who was a winner as uh, Robert Charles Wilson, who I still think is one of the absolute best writers in the field. Yep. He writes essentially normal science fiction, uh, but he does it with great sensitivity and great character development and that sort of thing. And I suspect that the spin, maybe not the whole trilogy, uh, but the spin will, will will be around for a while.
0: Yeah.
1: Simply because it's a good novel. Uh, and, and that my argument is that the novels that survive tend to be good novels. Neuromancer was a revolutionary novel but if it hadn't been really good
0: it wouldn't have been revolutionary. True, true. Um, and uh, people still Well, even marvel- though I mean I I think you can see Neuromancer in 2012 creaking a bit. It creaks now.
1: It does, I agree. Um, but you know, I mean uh, any any classic science fiction creaks a bit in that sense. Um, we have A canonical for Leibowitz's you know, it's one of the definitive nuclear war, future medievalism. There are all kinds of sort of traditions that came out of that book. Yeah. Uh, and and some of them are, are very dated now, the whole True. Uh, flame deluge thing. And certainly, um, I
0: mean, I'm looking down the list of Hugo winning novels, for the, the, the full list. And I reckon there's a batch of them that aren't read widely any longer. A, a large batch of them, in fact. I mean, mm-hmm. they're still read, but not widely. I mean... Uh, how many people do you think are still reading, for example, *Oh Dream Snake* or *Snow Queen*? Or you know, I, I yeah. suspect those books probably aren't that widely read today.
1: What I'm curious about, because I am in academia, is which books are read by readers and which books are read because they're passed on by professors and people like us. Yes, I mean for years and years now. The uh, I, I don't know what the latest survey is, but you know, *The Left Hand of Darkness*. Uh, was probably one of the most, if not the most widely taught uh, contemporary science fiction, recent science fiction. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Philip K. Dick has pretty much been canonized now. Um, And if you you go past Le Guin um, and try to find post-1970s writers who have been, uh, but by canonized, I mean continually read both by readers and taught in classes, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure what's there. Neuromancer certainly. Yeah. I mean, you have asked this question before. What what's what's been the last you know canonical classic that's going to make its way into the classroom? It's going to be reread by people. I still talk to people who've discovered Neuromancer within the
0: last couple of years and think it's really cool. Yeah. Well, it is. It is really cool. Um, I would have to go back over long lists of books to answer that question, uh, and I'd be reluctant to answer it shooting from the hip because. Yeah, I I don't know what that I means. Well, okay, first of all, time is at the is the um, mechanism or a feature of canon formation. Enough time has to passed, but then I guess if, if you're saying that, you know, the last time we were confident that a work entered the canon was 1984 when Neuromancer came out, right? Mm-hmm. It can't really be nearly 30 years since a book went into the canon. We must be missing something really big here. Vernon uh, um, Avengers Far Upon the Deep is that canonical? Not really. That doesn't feel canonical does it? I mean I'm looking at award winners so that's a bad way of doing it and I'd have to go back through other things but things aren't leaping to mind. Um, any of Connie Willis's books are they canonical? Um,
1: I would guess that the Connie Willis book which continues to be read more than any other is Doomsday Book. Yeah. But again it's, it's largely that interface of historical fiction. Uh, there are books that in, are, are canonical in one sense, but they're not going to be that widely read simply because of the size of them. Sure. Like Stan Robinson's Mars trilogy. Yes, Red Mars uh, canonical? Surely Red Mars must be canonical. Red Mars, I think, is 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 a good candidate, a good possible candidate. If you take that as a standalone novel, uh, uh, there's plenty to recommend Blue Mars and Green Mars. Hyperion. Is Hyperion canonical? No.
0: It's, no. It's, it's wow. Per- Okay no I'm, I'm not, not outraged I'm surprised.
1: No I mean I, I enjoy it tremendously. Um and I have no problems uh recommending it to people who want to have a lot of fun but uh, is it is it something that's important to understand the development of the field in the last 50 years? I don't think so.
0: How about Neil Stevens and anything of his?
1: Yeah. Snow Crash. Snow Crash no is
0: canonical.
1: Doubt. Okay. Snow tra- Snow Crash is canonical. So, I So would, we
0: move up into the 90s now. Okay, well the well, 90s canonical.
1: Parentheses. Snow Crash is canonical, but Diamond Age is a better novel.
0: Oh yes, I do like the Diamond Age. Uh, anything by Al Reynolds or Steve Baxter or Paul McCauley, Any of those? And I'm not just in boys. I haven't even got. I mean, got to the, yeah, uh, you, know, you know, female writers in the field. Uh, Octavia Butler, one of, one of the great writers of the last 30 years in our field, canonical work. Well,
1: here's an odd thing because I've been teaching Kindred for years. Kindred is clearly a canonical book in terms of American literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it is a standard book. It's taught. The, the current edition has discussion questions and teachers' guides and this sort of thing. It's taught in the high schools. It is a classic work of African, classic work of American literature, of African American literature, of feminist literature. Is it a classic work of science fiction? Even Octavia said it wasn't
0: science fiction. So, well, here's a, 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 a parallel question on a topic that was getting me annoyed. A while ago, about the Library of America's treatment of Edgar Rice Burroughs by creating their own little separate, well, he's profitable, but he's not any good list. Yeah. Does Octavia Butler belong in the Lab- Library of America?
1: I would think so. I would think uh, so to, too. I mean, to be honest, if I were to look at um, the way the Library of America works, and I, I obviously don't want to get them mad at me, but I okay. think I got the last. I think I got the last check, so I'm okay. <laughs> um, I. Bradbury is the first obvious choice. Uh, and he he knows he's going to get into the Library of America. Uh, he's pretty made that clear. Then then you're then you're into interesting questions. Le Guin has a very good shot at it. Uh, another candidate that deserves it but may or may not get it. Certainly not in the next few years is Gene Wolfe. Yep. Uh, and beyond that, um, will Heinlein get a volume? I don't know. Um, will Fritz Library get a volume? That's I mean, right now the Library of America is testing the waters, and I think what they're doing with with Burroughs is, is, is yeah, exactly what you said. They're hedging their bets. They say, well, we're not going to say this is an American classic, but it's kind of a cultural icon, so uh, we'll put it out there. And uh, and there are people who want to have permanent uh, editions of Edgar sure. Rice Burroughs, and they probably look nice. I've not seen the book yet. No. Um, but you know, I mean, there there are things like. Um, it's, it's interesting the way they handled Vonnegut, for example. The science fiction novels of Vonnegut, the ones that those of us in the science fiction field loved, like the Sirens of Titan, are coming out as a subsequent volume okay. to the one that contained his more mainstream Vonnegutian kind of stuff. In other words, the first volume of Vonnegut that gets published by the Library of America are the novels that Vonnegut wrote after he had renounced science fiction, Okay. and the novels that really established him as a science fiction writer. And remember, he was he was involved with the field. He was yes. writing letters to pit Fox and things like that. Uh, Wasn't he in FNSF? With, huh? He he uh, st- sold stories to, I think, FNSF. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So he was involved in the field. But in the 50s, he was clearly somebody who uh, like Bradbury, like a lot of other writers at that period, knew he wanted to get out. But he also knew that the way he was going to get started was in this field. Yeah. Uh, and the Sirens of Titan was a Dell original, uh, Dell paperback. There you go. So there you go. Um, let,
0: let, let me bring this around then to one of the award announcements for this week. Because of course, now that we're past January, and now that yes. you're home from Iqfa, we didn't even talk about being home from Iqfa. Now that you're home from Iqfa, you should talk about Iqfa later on. Yeah, um, it's award season again, of course. Award season started, and it will run all the way through till. God, the end of the year, when it will start again almost immediately. Now, this week, the Arthur C. Clarke Awards shortlist was announced uh, in London. Mm-hmm. By Major Awards Director, sir. Uh, the nominees, or the shortlist, I guess, more, more correctly, for the Clarke Award are Hull 03 by Greg Bear, The End Specialist by Drew McGarry, Embassy Town by China Medical, Prentice Podcast, Hello China. The Testament of Jesse Lamb by Jane Rogers, Rules 34 by Charlie Strass, also a friend of this podcast, Hello Charlie, and The Water's Rising by Sherry S. Tepper, certainly a friend of Charles's, but not someone I've actually ever met myself. So an, uh, an interesting, possibly from my point of view, idiosyncratic and possibly even eccentric uh, shortlist, I think. Now the Clark Awards are novels that were published in the
1: UK during the year 2011. Am I correct? In 2011. In 2011. So 2011.
0: So there, uh, there are that, things, that, That's why Hull three zero surprised me. I've, I have this feeling it was actually a 2010 book in the US. That was my sense
1: too. Uh, I'll have to look up my review of it. Um, but it's, it's it's an odd list, I agree. Uh, and as you and I are both aware, and it's probably everybody, this is probably really old news by the time anybody hears this oh, podcast. Yeah. Christopher Priest was really upset with that list.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I think... L- let's talk just for a second about the list itself before we touch on um, what tr- what he had to say. First of all, there's, there's the Greg Bear book, which is a hard science fiction novel. It's uh-huh. perhaps a slightly old-fashioned... No, not perhaps. It is an old-fashioned, it's hard SF kind of book. Old-fashioned. I felt that it was not a major work from Baer, and it was somewhat... I don't know. Underdeveloped. I felt it was undercooked. It's, it's just—it's like a novella rather than a full no- novel. Uh, My sense is
1: What distinguished as, um, as as one of Bear's works was just its grimness and its darkness and yes, its bitterness. Yes, yeah. But uh, no, it's, it's, there's nothing new there. There's yeah. nothing nothing in that novel comparable to what he did in Darwin's Radio, what ten years ago.
0: Exactly. Or, or even in something like, say, City at the End of Time, which he did immediately before, I think it was the novel before that, right. which was, yeah. I think was hailed as, if not a return to form, at least a return to strengths. Um, there was Drew McGarry's End Specialist, I have to tell you, and this doesn't say anything good about me as a critic and follower of the field, it's not only a book I've not read, it's a book I hadn't read um, yeah. beforehand. And I have to say, there's two books like that on this list, and I think that's, you know, they give an idea of, the benefits of an awards process, if you like. I'm now interested in uh, Drew McGarry's The End Specialist because it's ended up on a award shortlist. It had not my attention. The other book uh, right. that was The Testament of Jesse Lamb by Jane Rogers, which came out from Sandstone Press, and I believe only got a very small distribution. So it's a chance to talk about that book, uh, mm-hmm. but i talk about it. There's Embassy Town, which we've talked about before, and which right. is a front. What are you doing, Gary? I'm not no, doing there's, anything. There's all this noise from things
1: moving. Oh, I was pouring myself a glass of wine. <laughs> oh, you know what? My chair squeaks when I move. Maybe that was it. Ah,
0: people don't realize uh, quite how recumbent you are during these podcasts, Gary.
1: I know. I'm, I'm very comfortable here. If,
0: if we're doing this in 2025, you're going to be taking red wine intravenously, I'm convinced. Anyway, mm. uh, so they've got Embassy Town, both lauded and criticized during the year. But nonetheless, none of one of the major books of the year. Uh, Rule 34, a book that I've read as well. I mean, I've read like three of the books on the list, which is one of the reasons why I wouldn't say too much about it. And The Water's Rising by Tepper, which I have to be honest, I don't know where you're at, but I dropped out reading Tepper probably round about Raising the Stones. Um, I I, I felt she started just repeating herself.
1: I read a couple after that. Uh, Charles was a friend of Sherry Tepper. I met her once. She's very... She's a... I, I, I dropped out reading at some point. I did not even see this novel. I mean, uh, lo- the locust did not send it to me. And I think that's fine because uh, what she does or what she's been doing is, is very passionate advocacy. Yeah. Uh, and the advocacy really took over the, uh, uh, the novels at some point. And I thought, okay, I, sh- she makes her point. It's a valid point. I completely agree that, you know, we've mistreated animals and so forth. Um, but, yeah, it just doesn't seem like she was doing anything very new afterwards.
0: Mm. And there was a gap where she wasn't writing much, and then she came back. And there was a the gap
1: where she wasn't writing much, The, yeah.
0: the Two Margarets and The Water's Rising. And I, mean, I have right. to say, um, she is an alumnus of a group that are quite staggeringly, amazingly interesting in our field. Mm-hmm. And that is the 80 and up group of active science fiction writers today. Mm-hmm. You know? With Tepper and Le Guin and Cole and Vance and all these people. And Gene Wolfe. And, and Gene Wolfe, yes, 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 yes. All these people who are active, who are vital, some of whom are still producing some of the very best work of their career. Wolf being the great example of that, but, you know. So, you know, one, yeah, you have to take your hat off, but, so. There's this interesting, slightly controversial, slightly provocative, I guess, shortlist, mm-hmm. in the sense that it makes you go off and have a look at a thing. And then along comes Chris Priest. Now, Chris Priest is, without doubt, one of the major science fiction writers, well, ma- major genre writers in the UK today. Um, yes. He's written several major, major works. He's been read out into the mainstream. He's had a best-selling movie, or a very successful movie made of from one of his books, Absolutely. The Prestige. The Prestige. Uh, the Prestige, which was a brilliant book. And then... Why am I going blank on the title? The one with the, bo- the World War Two bombers, which is absolutely astoundingly, brilliantly good. Yes, and it did
1: win the Clark Award. But it? it
0: did win the Clark Award. I think you're correct. Yes. And then um, along comes, of course, he had um, The Islanders this year, which you've read, and have not or uh, last year, uh, but you loved. Yes, I loved it. So he comes along wow. and and. He writes this piece on his blog. You go to christopherpriest.co.uk. It's called Hull Nil Scunthorpe 3, which I take as a reference to a House Martin's album, London Nil Hull 4. Um, and I have to say, it's, on one hand, I'm really, I really support the piece. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you why. It's a passionate engagement on an intelligent on a level with an award shortlist. I mean, Christopher Priest cared very greatly about these awards. And the the giveaway isn't that he wrote this piece, which was done, I don't know how long he spent on it, but probably not a great uh-huh. deal of time. But he read all the nominees. He followed the list. Exactly. Of, he fa- he yeah. followed the list of stuff that was submitted, and he read everything, right? And his initial... Um, his initial conclusions are ones that I wouldn't argue with very greatly, which was that it wasn't the, the, the strongest year for science fiction last year. I mean, he says, seems to me 2011 was a, pure, a poor year for science fiction. Uh, of the 60 books, he read 60 books nearly, submitted by publishers, only a ha- tiny handful were suitable for the awards, he says. Now, it, ignoring his math, that actually gels with our observation through Locus Awards, short listings, and doing end-of-year lists. If you go back, we we say it wasn't the strongest year. It's one of those cyclical things. I mean, by contrast, I think we find ourselves in what looks like a really interesting and engaging and exciting year in 2012, which goes to show just how fickle such a thing is. So, I mean, here he is. He's engaging intelligently. He's engaging passionately. And he's reacting to the best part of what Discussing Awards is, which is discussing the field and where we are and what we're doing in our field. Mm-hmm. I think that, that's a great thing to do. However, and sorry, he, he then goes on actually to do the other thing. That, that Hang on a second, Gary. Wait a second, yeah? Okay. Well, one of the things I'm
1: interested about is how many of these novels, and I've not done this, have we cross-indexed with the Locust recommended reading list? Do we have any sense of what's on one list and not on the other list? No, we don't know. I just got interrupted which sort of threw my train of thought a little bit. Uh, sorry. I, was just, I was just saying you have, have, have you have you cross-checked the um, Clark Award shortlist with the locust recommended list?
0: Uh yeah, we recommended Hull 30, uh, 03. We recommended Embassy Town and Rule 34, but we didn't recommend the Tip Tree, the Rogers or the McGarry.
1: Right. Um now, the Tip I mean the Tepper.
0: Oh, Tepper, sorry. Well, what I was going to say before I was interrupted my, by my daughter, who's obviously finished watching a television program, mm-hmm. is that he does something in this process that I love, and that is that he highlights books that he thinks we should have paid attention to. And uh-huh. in that, in doing so, he enriches the discussion in the field, the dialogue in the field, right? So at this point, I'm completely on board. He's come in, he said, I've read this stuff, I've researched it, um, I think His own writing, his own position in the field shows that he has an engagement with the field, a knowledge of the field, which is great. Uh He then goes on to recommend books that he thinks should have been discussed. Ian R. McLeod's Wake Up and Dream. Now, I've not Mm -hmm. read Wake Up and Dream, but McLeod is a major writer in our field and in the UK. British science fiction is, irrespective of Priest's conclusions about um, the shortlist, in very great health, I think. Um, He... Talks about Simon Ings' novel Dead Water, which, which I don't know. I, well, that's it. You see, we never got it, I don't think, or if we did, I got it just. A, so I went out yesterday. I bought a copy. Uh huh. Because of Chris Priest's article, and that to me is the illustration of the value of this whole process. I went out. I bought the book. I have it here in my hand as we speak. It's an interesting looking book. It starts in a really engaging way. Uh, I had seen Simon Ings as a writer who perhaps. Had had his moment in the sun back in the 90s or early 2000s or something. That's what,
1: that's what I remember, yeah.
0: And had gone on to, has now gone on to edit ARC magazine for The New Scientist, which is a new science fiction magazine that came out a month or two ago. Uh, but however, he had a mainstream novel come out uh, about two years ago called The Weight of Numbers, which got astoundingly good reviews. We were just weren't aware of it. And now mm-hmm. a genre novel. So it's something to look at, to be aware of. Uh, he also recommends uh, *By Light Alone* by Adam Roberts, mm-hmm. which got very, very, very good reviews, and a book that you've read, *Lavi Tidhar's Osama*. Which I'm glad. I'm really
1: glad he mentioned that because I wrote a review of Osama, which was very favorable. I thought it was an unusual, very interesting metafictional take on alternate history, and it was a PS book. Now, PS books don't get a lot of attention especially in the States, true. but uh, it, it, I, I'm, I'm glad to see him him looking at it in pretty much the same way I did, that yeah. if the Clark Award is meant to recognize a young writer who's trying to do new things, uh, whatever, however successfully or, or, or not he achieves that aim, uh, that Osama is, a, I agree with him completely, that's a good example of that kind of fiction, the kind yeah. of fiction that ought to be recognized by something like the Clark.
0: Yeah. So I think, you know, I mean, At this point, I really do think this quite controversial piece of of Priests is mostly on target. You know, I mean, there's there's one or two little asides. I mean, he makes passing reference to uh, going to a writer's conference and takes a moment out to sort of put down one of his fellow panelists in a completely unnecessary and egregious way. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that, unfortunately for me, that's at the beginning of his piece. If I were going to uh, edit his piece, I would take out the opening three paragraphs because they're irrelevant to the actual piece and also because they just contain this irrelevant personal things. And at various points, uh, to use a cricketing metaphor, Gary, he stops playing the ball, he starts playing the man, you know. Uh, And so he he starts not talking about the works at hand, you know. For example, he's he's critical of uh, Embassy Town by China China Mieville,
1: but crit- well, his. Yeah. But, but he's talking about the book there. He's talking about specific things in the book. He doesn't like the characterization. He doesn't like the flood of neologisms. Um. I've talked to a number of people who found. And he's got a very good point that for a non-science fiction reader, it's sure. It's not an easy novel to get into.
0: True. Um. And and that I I'm I'm not troubled by that. But I think when you start saying things like, you know the author isn't applying himself enough to his task. He's getting too much false encouragement, and so he's being lazy about writing his book. I don't think think that's that's true. I think... Well, I don't think it's true, but I think it's also... It's veering off, really, the point and on to playing... He's utterly dismissive of Sherry Tepper's book to the point where he says nothing about it other than it has horses in it, you know? Yeah. Which is irrelevant. And then he goes on to... I think perhaps the most eccentric part of it, and really there's very little much to say about it, which is to criticize the judges, declare them to be incompetent, suggest they should um, actually be retrospectively sacked, their award list overturned, and it should all be rerun next year, which is all just... Yeah, it's basically saying the only honourable way out is seppuku. Pretty much, pretty much. I, I will say to me... For Christopher Priest, the only honorable way out now is to put uh, put his hand up and say, I want to be a judge for the 2013 Clark Awards. Um,
1: I This is what every, I've been looking at some of the responses on the web, and pretty much everybody says it would serve him right to be a judge for the Clark Awards. I don't know if he's ever been a judge for the Clark oh, Awards. I don't know either. Uh, I don't know. Uh, he, does quote, um, uh, he does quote one statement that Andrew Butler made in uh, The Chair, I guess. Yeah. Or the administrator, uh, that the, I don't have it in front of me. Something to the effect that this year's shortlist has something for everybody. Now, this is apparently something in response to uh, a newspaper interview. Yeah. And. Really, that's not the sort of thing you ought to say about a best of the year list. Your, the purpose of putting together a best of the year list is not to give something to everybody.
0: <laughs> well, particularly if if you're a, a juryed award, you'd hope that you'd have some kind of coherent view of what you think the field is and what excellence is. But then we have to be honest, Gary. I mean, you are the most judgingy person of 2012, aren't you? I mean, you're on like every second panel in the world. Well, we're
1: gonna. Yeah, I'm, I'm going out of one judging thing and into another one. But by and large. Uh, the sense I get, I, I don't know how the Clark Award jury worked. I know how World Fantasy Awards sure. juries work. I'm beginning to learn about Shirley Jackson Awards. Soon I'll learn about Tiptree Awards. And my sense is that there is uh, there there is some genuine uh, give and take. There's some debate. There's some um, uh, sense that, um, that people passionately want one book. I don't get any sense um, from various other jurors of other awards that I've talked to that there's any sense that we need to have one of each. Uh, you know, let's have okay. We have got to have something for the hard science fiction people. We got to have something for the uh, no. for the sherry tepper crowd. I, I I don't know of any group of judges that have actually approached their task that way.
0: That's outside my experience as well. I mean, I've been a judge for the um, the world fantasy awards. I've been a judge for the Aurealis awards here in Australia, um, mm. and you know, I'd happily do it again. I judge. Uh, I've not experienced that. Uh, all I've experienced what I've experienced is. Um, people who are interested, who are engaged, who are committed to what they're doing, who are looking at the, the field and trying to come up with a, a set of results that they feel are rewarding and interesting, you know. Uh, and that, I mean, and the things I mean, this is a set of awards that was uh, they were applauded last year because they picked up the Lauren Bukes book, *Quazar City*. Mm. Uh, and they have recognized some of the. I mean, they recognized Ian Mcleod a couple of years ago. Um, I admit that this is, would be Chyna Mieville's fourth Clark Award if he wins, and that does seem a lot, but on the other yeah. hand, you know, that's irrelevant. It's it's you, you play the year, and it may be that he had the best book of the year. I would not be surprised to see Embassy Town win, frankly. You know, um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's it's In a sense, it would be an easy choice. I
1: mean, one of the problems, and I don't know, again, how the Clark Award judges are selected, whether you can repeat yourself as an awards judge, which is frequently prohibited, and I don't know the names. I know about three of the names on the Clark Award list. Yeah. Um, and I know that one of the problems you do have with a judged award is that uh, you begin to run out of judges eventually. After 10 yeah. or 20 or 30 years, I remember running the Crawford Award for sure. For years. We tried to, to put together a jury of five judges who would just do everything. And eventually everybody quits and says, I'll never do this again. And then you sort of scratching the bottom of the barrel to find five more judges, and eventually you've got people who uh, don't represent anything other than the fact that they're willing to do it. Now, I don't think that's going on with the Clark Awards, but there is the question of, you know, who are the judges, what are their qualifications, um, and why are these people chosen? Mm-hmm. And I, I, have, I have a sense that, from what I know of other awards, that, uh, that there is a sense that, um, you know, like I say, after many years, um, you're, you're wanting to get as much variety as you can in the award selection and some years you're going to get uh, a, a, a jury that has very uh, conventional taste and mm-hmm. some years you're going to get a jury that's extremely eccentric.
0: Yes, exactly. I think that's very very fair and very true. So I don't know, I mean, I, I think an interesting short list, I certainly respect, uh, as I say, Priest's passion and commitment. Uh, I, would, I would be intrigued to see him uh, Sort of given the chance to to judge and see whether that would uh, how that would play out. Uh, I do think if he did, and this is this is what what we in the the podcasting trade call a segue, Gary. If if Chris Priest were given the opportunity to to judge the Clark Awards for 2012, but to be presented in 2013, he'd have a pretty good year to play with. This is not a bad year. This is a better looking year than
1: last year. There are major works coming out from major writers. Um, some of them, in the case of, I've mentioned Terry Bisson before, the best novel of his career, mm. uh, and a major work from Stan Rob- Kim Stanley Robinson. Um, you know, an- another major young adult book from China Miéville, and to the point where you don't even really need to uh, qualify these things with with young adult anymore. True. I mean, the next, and, and, and lest, the lest we
0: forget, I mean, if you're putting together a science fiction list, a very strong Paul McCauley novel. Yeah. A very strong Al Reynolds novel. Um, there was... Um, oh, who was, who's was got a book coming out that I just saw the other day? Just every... I mean, you, If you're very off science you've got things like The Drowning Girl by Kate Kiernan. Um, right. I just picked up uh, Sonia Hartnett's new novel. I don't know if you're familiar with her. She's a, I don't know that, no. Oh, yeah. She's a major, 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 major Australian YA writer brilliant, brilliant writer. She's got a new book out called The Children of the King, which looks fantastic. There's *Railsea*, which I got distracted from because I hated all of the ampersands and I have to go back to. Do I I need to struggle over the ampersands, Gary? Do I get past those? Yeah, you need to get past the ampersands. There's actually a chapter that explains the ampersands. Okay, because the other thing is, what's his fascination with railways? This is his second railway book. It's true. Um,
1: I, I, I think there's a there's a kind of general science fictional fascination with railways. I mean, there's, there's a major railway of sorts in Stan Robinson's 2312.
0: Yes, true. <coughs> very city true. city of well, Trimble, I, so Yeah, the I guess, yes. Uh, so got there was, uh,
1: who, who was it that wrote the Martian Rail? Was that a uh, uh, Martian McDonald. Ann McDonald, yeah. Railways on Mars. I mean, science fiction loves railroads. It should. Railroads no, do, you, do, you know, do you know what
0: loves railroads? I mm-hmm. hate this. Thirteen-year-old boys love railways. No, China's
1: novel. He here, here, here's, here, here's the interesting thing, and I, I will give some. I, I will give a footnote to Farah Mendelssohn who pointed this out to me, but she's absolutely right uh, that c., um and I think some of this is also true of uh, novels like Planes Runner, and it looks like it's going to be true of um, of, the, of the new Pella ba- Batchelupy ba- novel. They're no longer using the template of what we modern uh, c- consider young adult fiction in the contemporary sense, the coming of age, the sensitive thing, the kind of budding romance, the education. And they're sort of going back to the template of Robert Louis Stevenson, of boys' adventure books, mm-hmm. which in, in the best sense of the word, they could be girls as well, but they are adventure stories that are not meant to be sensitive and uh, dealing with family relations. They're meant to be fun. Yeah. And uh, I, 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 Planes Runner, I think, is right in that. Uh, yes. Um, category I think that Scott Westerfeld's last trilogy is right in that yes. category
0: yes and obviously we'll and I have no
1: problem with people writing cool adventure stories
0: <laughs>
1: girls or boys
0: so actually I get the feeling I don't feel we were this optimistic when we were talking about 2011 during 2011 so I get the feeling that as, as for novelists at least it's a real pickup you know because of chronological chance in the quality of stuff we're seeing.
1: I think that's true. And are you seeing the same thing? I assume you've started reading short fiction now. For the, um,
0: I am reading fiction. short fiction. Yes, I mean we're. I'm already starting to get the. Where are we getting? I'm getting June and July issues of magazines at the moment, uh-huh. and uh, chasing down anthologies. The problem is, and I was complaining about this because I, I've come to realize, you see, whatever anybody actually thinks Twitter is for, Twitter is actually for whining. Right. So 140 Absolutely. characters of whining. And I was I was whining because people are putting short stories in odd little places and they never tell you. So you know every you know even every reprint anthology has to have at least one new story, and every short story collection has to have one story, and stuff just pops up in weird places. But uh, the first issue of Ark, which came out recently, was good. Was it was a uh-huh. good, a little uneven, but it had a strong Al Reynolds story, a good Steve Baxter story, and it had and Gary I'm not bitter. Okay, that's code for I'm Bitter. Uh, it has oh. the um, M. John Harrison story that was going to be in Eclipse 5. Oh, yes. Yes. And I'm trying to be a big, a big enough person to, to accept the fact that it really probably belongs in the best of the year, uh, even though it wasn't in my book where it belonged. I have to be a big person, but yes. Um, it's interesting because, you know, I mean, there's, there's also a very good um, anthology out from Heikosuru. Who are Viz Media's publishing arm here in, or Uh there in the Uh, press. Nick, Nick Mamatis. Yeah, Nick Mamatis is the editor there, and he's edited an anthology, or co-edited an anthology for them called The Future is Japanese, which frankly sounds like a mid-1980s cyberpunk title, but is actually a very good book. Lots of interesting stories in it. Mm -hmm. A very good novelette from Ken Liu, who's one of the real up and comers of our time. I think, and you've seen him. So, yeah, I think it's looking good. I must say, at this juncture in the year, the online magazines are looking much less interesting than they have in the last couple of years. Really? Yeah, much less interesting. I mean, uh, none of them have particularly stood out when I look at the usual crop. I don't really want to name names because it sounds like I'm singling them out for criticism. But, um, yeah, none of the online magazines have particularly stood out. Uh, The print magazines, Asimovs is having another good year. The anthologies are doing well, and there's stuff all over the place. I'm I'm fascinated to see what we're going to see in the second half of the year because I'm confident that those magazines will pick up. And uh, actually, as, as as again a little side sideways sort of look back to our comments on awards with awards highlighting things. One example of things being highlighted as a result of the awards is the attention paid to Gigantosaurus, and I don't know if you've heard of Gigantosaurus, Gary. I've heard of it, but I don't know what. I don't know why. Gigantosaurus is a small um, webzine published, I I think it's by Anne Harris, though I'll confirm that in a moment or two. Um, And it publishes one story per month each year. uh, Gigantosaurus currently has two stories on the Nebula ballot. Now, if you've only published 12 stories in a year, that's a fairly healthy proportion of the final ballot. You would have right. to say. And so they're, they've they got a great deal of attention because of the awards. And, yeah, it's really interesting to see that happen. And I think we're now kind of all, fo- you know, sort of paying attention to it. So, yeah. But, no, so yeah, it's an interesting year. Interesting, interesting, interesting year.
1: Well, one of the things that uh, uh, was interesting to me, and uh, we we were going to talk a little bit about going to ICFA. And uh, there uh, ICFA is... Uh, one of my favorite conferences because there are lots of writers yep. there. You never know who's going to show up, and you get a sense of uh, not only you know veterans who are regulars there, like Joe Haldeman and Peter Straub and Kathy Gunning and so forth. Mm. Who I met this year, which made me really feel old and not old at the same time, yeah. Uh, yeah. was uh, Lily Yu. Oh yeah, the cartographer wasps, and mm. uh, she was originally uh, she may be one of the most successful of the <laughs> undergraduate writing contest. People. Asimov runs this contest for undergraduate mm-hmm. science fiction writing, which is run by Sheila Williams and Rick Wilbur. And I think she was she she won it or um, or or placed in it or something. And she's very articulate, very smart, uh, and very young. I mean she's like nineteen or twenty or something, and she's writing stories like this. And I'm thinking, okay, she has got her um She's getting her act together very rapidly, and it's a very inventive story. And I first read it, I think, in your years,
0: Beth. Yeah, I'm just pulling a copy. That, that, that fistling you heard is me pulling a copy out of the book because uh, out of a box because yeah, it's the second story in the book, right no, after Neil Gaiman's book about wasps.
1: It's a it's a stunning story. Yes. Um, and she clearly is uh, somebody who's you know uh, got a career ahead of her. And then um, some other people that were at the conference, Rachel Swirsky has been there for a couple of years now. Uh, Genevieve Valentine who won the Crawford Award and, I'm, and, and I know it's partly me but I'm pretty sure that Joe Alderman feels the same way these people are really young <laughs> and they're really doing good work
0: <laughs> yes they are young there's no doubt about it <laughs> uh, and, but you know I mean, that, that, that is a brilliant thing for the field surely
1: well, I mean, that, I mean, that,
0: that's what you want isn't it you know, young, yeah, that, them thar young folk to come along and write stuff and show us all how we're doing it wrong
1: well, there are new writers. I mean, it's not necessarily youth, and I'm not going to no. uh, try to make distinctions. I mean, uh, the second year now, and and one of our favorite people and a podcast friend, of course, is Karen Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, who okay. is, let me put it this way. Karen yeah. is not as young as Lily. You is. But Karen is, in our field, in our visibility, uh, in the visibility That's true. of our field, is almost as new a writer.
0: Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, she's what one major work published. And published, uh, and we sit and here impatiently so. waiting for, for the next. Um, yeah. so, but no, that's absolutely true. Yes, she's very new. I mean, swersky has been around for a few years, but not a long time. Right. Um, <sighs> same for people. It's mean, Val- like,
1: yeah. going Valentine. It's surprising to realize uh, this sometimes happens in the Crawford Award um, that she's she has been around for a long time, but this is it is a first. It is a first book, uh, which is all our uh, the mechanique. Uh, Was it?
0: Huh. It was her first book, I believe. Uh, see, I would have thought that... Uh, first book or first novel? Well, first novel. Certainly a first novel. Did she have a yeah, first novel. I, I, I wouldn't have been surprised. I mean, look, I'm just now thinking off the top of my head as I pretend to have a brilliant functioning memory and actually search ISFDB. I thought she might have had a collection, and I don't know why. And if she hasn't, it can't be far away, that's for sure. Because she's oh, been no. a prolific short story writer for the last four or five years. But yeah.
1: One of the things we always have a problem with them in this award is explaining to people that it is for a new writer and it is meant to be for a first book. Ah. So you can have a writer who's been around for a few years publishing a fair amount of short stories. We gave the Crawford Award to Joe Hill for uh, 20th Century Ghosts, yep. which obviously pieces of those have been published over a period of years. But um, there is something about our field and probably literature in general that having a book is important.
0: I think it is. I think it is. I think, if, you know, I, I think last week we spoke to Andy Duncan and that podcast only went up, mm-hmm. well, as people listened to this podcast last week, but as we experienced it yesterday. And I am still shocked that really he's just had his second book out. Really. Mm-hmm. I mean, depending on how you count, um, little chapbooks, cause I like think he had, uh, The Night cage came out as a little hardcover book. So that right. would make his yes. third. But I mean, for a man who's been in the field or a writer who's been in the field since, Certainly, the mid to late 1990s. Mm-hmm. Two books. Um, same for Ted Chang. Two books.
1: Yeah, they're kind of in a competition with each other, aren't they? <laughs> uh,
0: I think the only person.
1: Uh, this is an interesting question of non-prolific writers or uh, tantalizingly unprolific. The only reason I, I use that phrase because I used that in a review of Ted Chang once, which apparently his girlfriend thought was really cool. Um, and we add Eileen Gunn to that list. Yes, she is. People, people who write really terrific stories, but not very many of them, and yes.
0: long gaps between. It's very true, very true. Um, but then on the other hand, I mean, the, not writers who I think are how would I put it? it? It's not in the way they they function to be prolific, probably. Um, you know, uh, it's it's an interesting interesting sort of time.
1: It is. I mean, I mean, they're fascinating writers. But the point is, I mean, Ted Chang has has certainly gotten the reputation of a major figure in the field, entirely on the basis of short fiction. Um, there are writers who began as um, as with w- with large impact novels. Uh, Maureen McHugh comes to mind with China Mountain Chang, and now she's one of these brilliant short story writers, and what do you look for next from Maureen is, a, is another great short story. Yes,
0: very true. Ah, it's true. You know what I'm thinking we might do next week, Gary, actually? What can we do for 97? For 97, well, I was thinking about having 96 and a half. Okay. Well, th- th- this is 96, right? And it'll go out next Friday. But maybe we should actually do just a short, so we don't beat people up too much, do a, do a short 20-minute one on the Hugos and mm. see if we can get a real 97 together after that.
1: You mean the Hugo nominations once they're out?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. When they, they come out uh, on April the ninth, I think. They're supposed to be um, announced at four separate conventions all around the shot, all around the world, uh, simultaneously or near simultaneously. I'm so, sure it'll
1: all be net blogged or net net, net video streamed or something.
0: Mm-hmm. So maybe we can we can find a moment to put together a um, a short podcast. And then we have to talk about other things. We have to think about what we're going to do in that run-up, as we keep talking uh-huh. about. We, we've not produced any commemorative items, so there shan't be any <laughs> any marketing for the 100th, I don't think. There won't be a few well, T-shirts and coffee cups.
1: We can have, yeah, we can, we, we can certainly do that, but it seems to me that we ought to come up with something like a fire hydrant. A
0: fire hydrant, Gary? What do you mean? I don't know. Are you telling me that a fire hydrant would be... The, um, what would go into a crude Street Award would be a little fire hydrant. Yeah, something like that.
1: It just occurred to me at the spur of the moment. I have no idea what it means.
0: <laughs> a fire hydrant. Well, should What's we give it a Street Cood Cood Award? Should we do an annual Coode Street Award? Are we just copying Galactic Suburbia? They just uh, tell me what it would be for, because let's face it, Lord knows our field needs another award, Gary. Um, tell me what it would be for. For the best award. Oh, I was thinking about an award award this morning. I really, really ah. was. I was thinking, I mean, it's, it's it's ridiculous, but there's an element for like, you know, the best award for 2012 is this award. But then is that, would you be giving it for the agreeing with the outcome of the award or for some assessment of the awards process?
1: Well, we can't necessarily suss out what the awards process is. So I'm not sure we could do that. I think what we could simply do is look at the outcome of the award and see if it's at all sane.
0: <laughs> and we haven't really had any outcome. At- well, no, have we had outcomes of awards yet? Yes, we have. I mean, we've had the. Well, the, other, the
1: other thing we could do is speaking of the fact that, uh, and, and you and I have talked about this before. When you go on the uh, on, on Mark Kelly's uh, awards index on the oh, local yeah. website. And there's that list of people who've never won awards, never been nominated for an award. Yes. We could give an award to the best book of the year that didn't get an award. <gasps> the best runner-up. The best runner-up. Oh, the Coot Street Bridesmaid Award. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at Lavi Titter's Osama, which I did like a lot. I'm not sure it's showing up on any finalist lists. Yep. Um, uh, And some of this has to do with its visibility, and sometimes awards have to do with nothing more or less than a book's visibility. But
0: hang on, are we talking about the best book that didn't make an awards ballot, or the best book that made an awards ballot a lot of times but didn't win? I don't know. Maybe
1: we could have two awards.
0: We'll have to think about this carefully. Plainly, this is a serious matter to be considered.
1: We We can certainly solicit, well, we can't solicit nominations yet, because the awards season has only begun. Uh,
0: This idea of an awards season is nonsense, Gary.
1: We have no, we, we, yes.
0: we have an we have an on award season and that's it a short on award season. Mm. <laughs> but I will tell you this as we now commence our now traditional rambling period, Gary. We've been going for yes, about 50, uh, just about fifty five minutes on the podcast. Uh, I, I I look with fear at my Australian counterparts, Galactic Suburbia and writer and a critic, who now seem to routinely hit the two hour mark. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, here's the thing, and I know that people
1: do this. I know that Paul Cornell has told us about this, uh, that people listen to podcasts, not just ours but others, when working out or when running. Yeah. And yeah. The, f- the reason I don't listen to two-hour podcasts is I would die on the elliptical after <laughs> two hours.
0: I, yes, I, we, I, I'm happy that we've managed, we are settling on an hour. Uh, it seems to sort of be a reasonable, neat thing, which means that in this week where – In fact, our friend Paul Cornell had his new graphic novel series start this week, Sorcerer Country. Mm -hmm. Congratulations, Congratulations Paul. Yep. Uh, That's come out to, I think, quite good reviews, so yay him. Uh, In in that week, perhaps this is the opportunity to sort of quietly wind up to to say farewell to the friends of the podcast. Al Reynolds, who's been on the podcast, is listening, Ian McDonald, um, Karen, everybody else out there. Um, Maybe to point out that, in fact apparently our first ever, ever, ever guest on the podcast is here in Perth somewhere, so I need to go looking for her, oh, Amelia Beamer fine.
1: Amelia
0: me. Beamer, Because yes. yeah, I, I actually realised looking back that she was our very first guest all, at, all those, well like nearly two years ago and that's the other thing, even if we don't do anything for the 100th episode, Gary, do we do something for the second anniversary? Let's do both <laughs> Let's do both well, let, have a let, Let's delay it. the 100th podcast until the second anniversary That's a good idea does that mean it would come out on the tenth of May? Um, Which actually probably isn't about far off anyway.
1: Well, you were the kind of thing you do when you're playing hide and seek with kids, where you say nine and a quarter, nine and a half, <laughs> nine and three quarters. We can just do that until we hit uh, oh. the two year anniversary. Who was our se- our second guest? Let me let me see if I can remember. Our second guest would have been Elizabeth
0: Hand and Peter Straub. Uh, no. no, no, no. Our second guest was Jeremy Lassen. Ah, okay. I remember that
1: in that just,
0: hotel. Just, Yeah. Cause you guys were up at the Locus Awards. Then right. we, then we had Liz and, P- and Peter, both of whom have returned to the podcast. Then right. Elisa and Tansy popped in from Galactic Suburbia. Okay. And, and then believe it or not, we were in, at the 2010 World Fantasy, uh, in Columbus. Yes. <laughs> with, uh, Francesca, Karen and Elisa. And then we had to chat with John and Cheryl. Uh, and who else? Garth popped in for episode 39. Look at me just going through them all. Then Karen was back with Jeff Ford and Liza, our erstwhile boss. I mean, but, Karen, uh, grown Yeah, yeah. She's popped in a couple of times. Farah Mendelson popped in with Tansy to talk about Diana Wynne Jones, as you'll recall. Then Liza popped in again and we had a chat about nebulas and madness. Then Eileen Garn, Ellen Clages, and Jeff Ryman when we, when you were at Wisconsin. So that was Wisconsin. a good time. You're going to go back to Wisconsin, Gary, do you think? I'm thinking about it. I mean, I'd love to get... Uh, I, I will
1: embarrass her if she ever listens. I'd love to get Mary Rickard on.
0: Yes. Well, we should.
1: And so then,
0: having finished up in WISCON, you were then off at the Stoker Awards, because you go around all over the place, and we had Datlow and our regular guest, Peter Straub. Yes. Who's probably been on more than anybody else, I now realize. Why uh, does it
1: sound like she's coming
0: close to that? She's only been on twice. Once. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Then we had... Um, uh, Terry Bisson came on with Greg Bear. Greg oh, Bear was very eager to talk about this book that's just come out in Galley, The Mongoliad, which I, I got a galley of here, Gary, and I, I don't even. I really don't want to read it. <laughs> I don't oh, is this know. The Mongoliad? Yeah, it looks just. I don't know what it is, but I don't even want to Yeah, know about it, really. Mm. There's something about the packaging and the. Something, I don't know. Then um, John Clute popped back when we talked about the encyclopedia.
1: Right.
0: Then, 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 of course, we went to Reno, the armpit of the universe, where we had a whole bunch of podcasts. So we talked to Joe Walton. Uh, then Ian Mond popped on the podcast, and then we had yes. Ursula came in. She was fantastic, mm-hmm. and we hope to have her back later in the year, don't we? Oh, we will, I'm
1: sure. Yep. I'm
0: Then and, um, and Al Reynolds
1: and Stan Robinson Ian? and Sophie in McDonald. Sophie, yes,
0: we've got to have Sophie back on. Then Paul. Look at all these great people we've had on. Lizanne came back. Cheryl Morgan came back. Ellen Kushner was on. She was really lovely. So was Barry. Um, mm-hmm. Wolfsburg. Michael Deere to cover for the fact that I didn't know what you guys were talking about, so I could shut up. Uh, Peter came back. And then the, they the we're doing well. We're having fun. So we'll have some nice other people on, and that will be good. And that's our hour, and we have rambled for the last 10 minutes. Gary? Gary?
1: Yeah, we could ask, ask people who they would like to have us
0: talk yeah, to. sure. Email us or comment. But I will say this. I don't think we're rambling, I know we're rambling. That's our trademark. What would we do if we didn't ramble? Makes sense. <laughs> you mean we need the inverse talking heads t-shirt? Start making sense. Yes, uh, exactly. <laughs> well, on that cheery note, I think we might call it a call it a podcast. We've been going for an hour. We'll let these people sort of get off their exercise equipment or finish breakfast. Like Cheryl normally listens over breakfast. Good morning, Cheryl. And, yeah, we will move on on what's a lovely, sunny, cool day. The fall has well and truly started here, Gary. It's going to rain all next week, they say, and I couldn't be happier.
1: And it's beginning to be spring here, and it's raining today. So we're pretty much in this once a year we more or less get the same weather pattern. True you fall and my spring. Delightful to talk to you as, as always, always, John.
0: Okay. I will talk to you next week, my friend. Take care. Okay. okay. Bye. Bye.